Welcome to the St. John's Hoxton podcast. We are a local church in East London, here to be a beacon of hope for Hoxton. And our mission is to worship God, make disciples, share Jesus and transform Hoxton. So if I haven't met you before, my name's Graham. I'm the vicar of the church, although I don't look much like it this evening. And uh, as John said, I want to begin um, a little... uh, sermon series that we're going to be looking at over the next four weeks of Lent, uh, all based around this book entitled The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And I'm going to say a bit more about that in a moment, but as we did in worship today, I, I, really, want our, I really want this time that we have, this little time of sharing with you, to begin and end with Jesus. I became a Christian in 1992 and encountering Jesus changed my life, transformed me, uh, enabled me to experience God's forgiveness, God's peace, God's hope and and joy. And and over the years, life isn't always easy and there are all kinds of struggles and problems and issues that we all go through and yet time and time again, I have found in Jesus a source of hope, a source of healing, a source of friendship. Um, somebody who teaches me, molds me, transforms me and encourages me. And actually when I can can bring myself, uh, if you like, a right into his presence, when I bring and and I set my eyes and my heart upon him, I find healing for my life. I find hope. I find all kinds of transformation, transforming power. So really, if you hear nothing else this evening, my encouragement to us as a church, it's an encouragement to us as a, as a congregation, as a community this Lent, but day in, day out, week in, week out. Let's find ways to fix our eyes again on Jesus, to, to set our lives upon following Jesus and pursuing Jesus. Jesus is the start and the end of everything. One phrase that has been um, haunting me, if I'm honest, it has been haunting me the last few weeks, is uh, some words of Jesus in uh, the gospel in Mark chapter 8, where uh, Peter has just confessed who Jesus is at Caesarea Philippi. He's just said, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one of God. And, um, and so this is wonderful kind of a uh, revelation, and Peter sees him. And then Jesus confounds them all by saying, yes, and the Son of Man will suffer and will be handed over to die. And on the third day, he will rise again. And Peter is baffled and he doesn't understand what's going on. And Jesus goes on to say, to be a disciple, to to follow me, means to deny yourself and to take up your cross daily and follow me. And he says, whoever seeks uh, to to hold on to their life, to cling to their life, to, to your way of life, to everything that is trusted and sure and steadfast in your life, to your own hopes, expectations, dreams, everything that makes you feel significant or secure or powerful. If you seek to hold on to those things, you'll lose it. But if you're willing to lose your life for the sake of me and the gospel, then you will find it. That's what Jesus says. And then he says, what does it profit a man if he gain the whole world but lose his soul? What does it profit a man if he gain the whole world but lose his soul? And the point Jesus is making, I I think, with this phrase is you could have all the outward trappings of success and status and power and affluence. But if you haven't got Jesus, if you're not following Jesus, then actually you have nothing at all and you've lost everything. So to be a friend of Jesus, to be a follower of Jesus is to 
put first things first. It's to put Jesus at the very center, at the very heart of things. Uh, all that really matters is putting Jesus first, pursuing him. And there is a, a sickness, uh, an illness, a disease, a malady uh, in contemporary society, and actually I think it's probably existed in every age in one form or another, which can distract us from pursuing Jesus, from fixing our eyes on Jesus, on, on following him. And that malady, that illness, that disease is the subject of uh, our, our teaching for the next few weeks. It's the issue of hurry, the issue of busyness, restlessness, distraction. It's when all the other conflicting and competing demands of life overwhelm us and tear us this way and that, dragging us apart, dragging our focus away from Jesus and instead to all of those other concerns. What I want to do tonight is think a little bit about this sickness, this illness, this disease, if you like. And, uh, and if, you go to, if you ever go to visit the doctor, uh, when you go to the doctor, the first thing you have to do is explain what's wrong with you. Um, because otherwise the doctor can't diagnose your, your illness, your, your malady. Um, before you get onto prognosis or prescription, you have to have a diagnosis. And in a way, that's what tonight is all about. It's trying to make a little diagnosis about what's the issue, what's going on in our society, what is at stake. Now, when I meet people, as, and many of you, I'm sure, will be the same as you do on a day-to-day basis, people say, oh, how, how, you, how are you doing at the moment? Nice to see you. You well? You say, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. Just very busy at the moment. That's a standard conditioned response for somebody like me. Just very busy. Just very busy. And that's a, a symptom of this disease, this illness that sucks at the very heart of us, that we, we feel ourselves to be, and often are, but certainly feel ourselves to be continually hurried, continually busy, continually pulled in multiple different directions. And this hurry and this busyness can take different forms. It can be the, overwhel- the overwhelming busyness of a crammed schedule, but it can also be uh, that sense of being overwhelmed by conflicting commitments to your work, your employer, to your study, your your, your learning, to your family, to your friends, to your own uh, recreation and hobbies and pursuits, the things that you like to do, feeling like there's never quite enough time in the day to fit it all in. And we long uh, to have just a few more hours in the day so that we don't have to leave anything behind or miss out. And that's a symptom of this kind of sickness, this kind of hurry. If you need to identify it, if you need to try and diagnose it in yourself, test your own reaction when you're caught in a queue. If you're irritable and impatient, it probably means that you've got this sickness. Um, have a look at your, your, your phone or your computer and look at how many browser tabs you have open on your web browser. It's a, it's a symptom of the distractedness that can take over us. Um, I had one friend who used to have like multiple windows open at a time on his computer and all these different tabs and it was like his mind was torn in 80 different directions as he tried to multitask to the point of sort of self-implosion. About 20 years ago, actually some psychologists published uh, a report in the Harvard Business Review about this malady, about this illness and they, did, they, they diagnosed it simply as hurry sickness. And they said that hurry sickness is a real thing and that people are suffering from being uh, sort of 
overwhelmed by stress and pressure in their lives. And they said this is a real concern because there's a medical issue at stake here because actually when we live lives under stress, uh, I forget all the right hormones for these, but I think it's the cortisol production increases and actually that's at the heart of heart disease. So people die from hurry sickness. Being overwhelmed, being over busy, being hurried and rushed can kill you. It's a big deal. There's important things at stake. And even if it doesn't kill you, it can destroy your relationships. Not just with one another, not just with family members or friends or uh, children or spouses or uh, workmates. But critically, it can kill your relationship with God. It can distract you and divert your eyes and your attention away from Jesus. And as I said, Jesus matters most. So I want to just look at um, a scripture which I think helps us think about how this can come about and how this might afflict us and and affect us. And then I want to uh, just share a couple of thoughts about what I'm calling for the purposes of tonight, tyrannical time, the way way we think about time, and digital distraction. Um, And I'm I'm afraid, I sort of feel apologetic that this sermon is all about the diagnosis uh, and and the, the remedy, the cure, that comes next week. So you have to come back next week if you want to get some of the good news. It's all a bit bleak and glum. Um, although hopefully we'll come back to Jesus later and that will, uh, that will be good news for us. If you want to grab a Bible, um, a real book Bible or a digital Bible, and uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 10. In the, in, the, in the real Bibles, the physical ones, it's on page um, 1042, the passage that I'd like to read. Uh, If it's on your phone, I don't know what page number it is. 1042. And I want to read um, from verse 38 about Jesus visiting uh, two sisters. Page 1042, reading from verse 38. says this, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but few are needed, or indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Now, I've known this passage of Scripture for many, many years, and I've heard it preached upon and used as a teaching example on many occasions, and it's often handled in a way that I think is a little bit tough and a bit unfair on Martha. It's often handled as a sort of kind of division and dichotomy between the spiritual Mary and the kind of practical Martha. You know, if you want to be a good Christian, you want to be spiritual, be like Mary. Don't be like Martha who just gets distracted by all the practical stuff. Like, oh my goodness, she should just like really grow up and mature in Christ and realize what she... That's often how this passage is dealt with and and treated. And I think that's a little unfair on Martha for a couple of reasons, actually. One of them is outside of this passage. So in John chapter 11, um, 
Mary and Martha have a brother uh, called Lazarus and he falls ill and sick and Martha sends for Jesus and when Jesus comes, Martha is the one who greets him, goes out to him and says, Lord, you had the power to heal my brother. And uh, they get into this conversation and uh, Martha says, I believe in the resurrection. I believe there will be a resurrection at the end of time. And then the conversation continues a little bit and Jesus says to Martha, do you, you, know, do you believe that I can? I am the resurrection of life. Do you believe I can do this? And she says, yeah, you are the son of God. You can do all things. With you, all things are possible. So actually, Martha has a really profound insight into who Jesus is. Martha is somebody who, in a sense, has put first things first and, and, and knows who Jesus is and wants to pursue uh, that obedient and that joyful life with him. And in fact, this very passage itself also tells us, verse 38, look who it was who opened the door and welcomed Jesus in. It was Martha. It wasn't Mary. A woman named Martha opened her home to him. So it was Martha at the very beginning of this episode that welcomed Jesus in. She was a woman who was seeking after God. She saw who Jesus was. And yet, something went wrong for her. What went wrong? Verse 40. Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. Martha did lots of good things, and all the good things perhaps distracted her from the one thing that mattered. She wanted to be hospitable. She wanted to make lots of preparations uh, for Jesus, to enjoy this meal with Jesus and his disciples. She knew that was important, but all those important things distracted her from the most important thing, which was to spend time with Jesus. Do you know, I think that can afflict and affect any one of us. We can pursue good things that distract us from the greater thing. I mean, in a way, we might not even gain the whole world in terms of worldly power, status, significance, and success, but we might gain the whole world of our, of our church life and discipleship and yet lose the one thing that matters most, our relationship with Jesus. A few years ago, I read a novel by John Steinbeck called East of Eden, and uh, I couldn't find the book to find the passage to read out to you exactly, but one passage made a real impression on me, and I remembered it. And, and John Steinbeck, in the novel, characterizes a woman who's really dedicated to church. You know, like, she'd be my star pupil in this church because she was on every rota. She served on every team. She never missed a Sunday. She was at everything. She was brilliant. You know, at a minister's dream. She did everything. Uh, but this is what John Steinbeck wrote about this woman, this character. He said she was too immersed in the mechanics of her religious devotions to ever experience the benefit of them. She was too immersed in the mechanics of her religious devotions to ever experience the benefit of them. In other words, she was distracted by all of the preparations, all of the work that went on in the church. I think that Martha, I think that the woman in John Steinbeck's novel, uh, I think that any one of us can and will in our lives suffer from hurry sickness, this malady that distracts us, and rushes us. Somebody pointed out that hurry is, uh, shares the same root as hurricane. Everything's in a whirlwind. Everything is uh, chaotic and up in a flurry. So, why the big issue around hurry? Well, hurry 
can be really bad news for a follower of Jesus. John Mark Comer, who wrote this book that we're, we're looking at these next few weeks, uh, recounts in the introductory chapter how he came to be interested in this subject. And, and he says this, that he had a conversation with a mentor of his named John Ortberg, and John Ortberg recounted a conversation he had with another man named Dallas Willard. You don't need to remember any of this stuff. But the point is that John Ortberg, at one stage in his life, had phoned his mentor, Dallas Willard, and said, how do I cultivate a spiritual life? How do do I put first things first? How do I prevent myself from going under with all of the kind of everyday stress of life? And uh, how do I keep my eyes fixed on Jesus and put first things first? And Dallas Willard paused for a moment and then said this, you must ruthlessly eliminate all hurry from your life. You must ruthlessly eliminate all hurry from your life. This was recounted to John Mark Homer and it resonated with him and he writes the book as a response. And he has some fantastic quotes in the opening chapters. He quotes Dallas Willard himself again who said, hurry is the greatest threat to spiritual life in our day. That's interesting, isn't it? I don't know if I were to ask any of us, what do you think is the greatest threat to spiritual life in our day? We might say, I don't know, like consumerism, or um, we might say like, uh, you know, changing kind of sexual ethics in our society. We might say social media. We might say technology. We might say Brexit. We could say anything, all these different sorts of things. We might say secularism, but Dallas Willard said, hurry is the greatest threat to spiritual life in our day. The psychologist Carl Jung, who uh, is sort of famous for the the psychology that underpins cognitive behavioral therapy and things like that, which are very fashionable today, he said, hurry isn't of the devil, hurry is the devil. Think about that next time you're rushing for an appointment. And Corrie ten Boom said, if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. Wow. Like, for a church minister, that is a rebuke. If the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. The author, John Mark Homer, went through all of this process thinking about how to, how to uh, he pastors a church in Seattle in the northeast of uh, the United States, and he went through this process of trying to think, how do we develop a healthy Christian community where people are following Jesus in, in healthy ways? And he took uh, all of this, these ideas to a friend of his who is uh, also a kind of psychologist um, and said, what do you think? Uh, to which his friend replied, most people are just too busy to have emotionally healthy and spiritually vibrant lives. Most people are just too busy to have emotionally healthy and spiritually vibrant lives. Well, I don't know about you, but I would like to have an emotionally healthy and a spiritually vibrant life. That's one of my desires in life. I think when Jesus talks about life and life in all its fullness... I think that's some of what he's getting at. To be emotionally in tune with all those people around you, to have healthy and constructive relationships with your friends, your family, your spouse, to have a spiritually vibrant life, to feel the presence of God with us, to be aware and alert to the reality of God with us in our lives, to, to know that Jesus has purpose for our lives and to know that we are living in alignment with that purpose. I want an emotionally healthy and spiritually vibrant life. I'm sure that many other people do, but most of us are just too busy. So what has made us so busy? Well, two things I think um, 
that we have to contend with. One is uh, the tyranny of time, and the second is digital distraction, because it's not just our busyness and our hurrying uh, in terms of the pressures that time brings, but it's also about how our attention is pulled this way and that by digital distractions in our age. So I'll just say a few brief words about each before we conclude. Um, it was around uh, two and a half thousand, 2,300, 2,400 years ago that a radical new disruptive technology was introduced into the Western world. It was around 300 years before Jesus was born, and this technology was called the sundial. And uh, the sundial uh, allowed people to mark and to measure hours. Up until that point, you had sunrise and sunset. And there was a point when the sun was sort of in the middle of the sky at its peak, and that was noon. And, and then you had seasons, and so the days got a bit longer or a bit shorter. But basically, people's lives were ordered by sunrise and sunset by the seasons. And you knew when you had to rise and work and when you had to uh, go and rest because of the way the sun moved. The great, as it were, chronograph in the sky that God had set up. And then the sundial arrived. And the Roman playwright, Plautus, uh, wrote this. The gods confound the man who first found out how to distinguish the hours. Confound him too, who in this place set up a sundial to cut and hack my days so wretchedly into small pieces. I wonder if that's the way you feel about your wristwatch. I don't know if you have a wristwatch anymore. Lots of people don't. But um, when you look at these little hour marks, I wonder if you think about this awful device which is cutting and hacking your day so wretchedly into small pieces. I don't know that I've thought about it that way before. I probably will from now on. About 20 years ago, I... Uh, had a conversation with an African bishop from Uganda, and he reported to me what he says was an African proverb. I don't know if this is true or not, but he said, it goes like this. He says, ah, you white people have watches, but we Africans have time. And I quite like that. It sort of stuck with me. You have watches, but we have time. The trouble is that even good intentions about how we use time and order time can have unintended consequences the monastic movement in the Christian tradition um, had a call to prayer seven times a day. A bell was rung seven times a day to gather the community to pray. That's good. That's a good intention. Let's get together and pray. We, have, we do it three times on a Sunday here, 9.30, 11.36. We don't ring the bell anymore, but you know, we, we gather for worship. It's a good thing. And yet part of the unintended consequence is a reinforcement of this idea that you know, time is marked out to be spent, to be used, and we can order our days and we can... We can um, cram more into it. In 1370, the first public clock was erected in Cologne in Germany. And really, from then on, Western history has ordered ourselves around these markings of the hour. One final uh, point about time uh, on this subject is uh, the way we expand time or, or, or try to make even more use of time by use of artificial light. We've had oil lamps and gas lamps for many years and candles and the like, but in 1879, Thomas Edison invented the electric light bulb. And ever since then, we've had artificial light much more readily at our disposal so that when it gets dark, we can turn on lights, we can turn on screens, we can continue uh, the, 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 the work of the day, the entertainment, the leisure, whatever it might be. 
John Mark Comer says that he always used to read the histories of his spiritual heroes and was amazed that they always used to, they seemed to always rise at 4 or 5 a.m. for prayer. And he was like, oh, they were so holy, they were so spiritual. And then he realized, well, they went to bed at 6 o'clock the night before when it got dark. They weren't watching Netflix until 11, 12, 1, anything like that. But that is the culture in which we live, where we feel like we need to cram and squeeze everything into this limited amount of time. We talk the language of making time for something. There we go. I'm going to see if I can make time for that next week. Has anybody ever made time other than God? We can't make time. All we can do is use the time that is allotted to us. We can use and deploy it according to our priorities and the things that matter. We have 168 hours per week. We have to choose how we will use them. We have to choose our priorities. And this comes back to that putting first things first, putting Jesus at the heart, Jesus first. So very briefly then, digital distraction. So we can, we can suffer from hurry sickness by way of um, being overwhelmed by the pressures of our schedule, trying to cram more into the time that we have and running late for things and always, never feeling like we quite have enough time to do all that we want to do. Uh, and we suffer fear of missing out because we can't keep up with all the new series and box sets and all the stuff that is going on. But then there is also digital distraction, which is about how our attention gets drawn away and grabbed. And uh, we were reminded the other week that the average, uh, by Caroline, the average iPhone user um, touches their screen over 2,900 times a day. And if you're in your 20s, that rises to over 4,000 times a day. We just keep on picking them up and touching them and doing stuff with them. And a uh, hundred years ago, T.S. Eliot, the Christian poet, wrote about, uh, very prophetically, he wrote about this twittering world in which we are distracted by distraction. Um, it's amazing, isn't it? There we are. He foresaw Twitter. Uh, but that's what social media is. We distract ourselves by distraction. I'm, on, I'm in Lent and I've gone off social media for Lent. I did it in Advent as well. It's great. It's really liberating. But it's so easy as well to be distracted into scrolling through something else. We, we get really, it's very easy to get hooked and addicted to these devices that we carry in our pockets. We live in what's described as the attention economy, where these devices are designed to grab and hook our attention. And actually, psychologists say that it's exactly the same psychology of the gambling industry. So slot machines in betting shops, where you go and put in 20 pence after 20 pence after 20 pence, or one pound after one pound after one pound, getting a little quick hit, a small payout, looks like the fruit wheel is going to spin just to the point where you want to go back and have another go. And, and that's exactly the same psychology that software designers are using in social media feeds. So that the like, the little feedback kick, the little endorphin rush of the vibrate on your phone gets you going back to the machine, keeping you absorbed, keeping your attention. These devices can cause us to be addicted. And, and if you wonder whether you are addicted or not, or you're saying, well, I'm not addicted, it doesn't mean anything to me. Well then, I did this this morning to our congregation this morning. I said, all right, prove it. Turn your phone off and uh, power off until tomorrow morning. So I had to turn my phone on before the service so that I could do this in front of you. Um, but it has been off all day and I didn't know what to do this afternoon. I had nothing to scroll. I read a, ma I read a magazine instead. It was great. But I, 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 I dare you to try it. Try giving your phone a Sabbath one day a week. Just say, I'm going to turn it off. There's a thought. So, 
Let me end with this. In the next few weeks, we're going to talk about silence and solitude and Sabbath and simplicity and all these different remedies to this malady, this illness that we suffer. Um, but all of this is really geared towards bringing our gaze and our focus back to Jesus. And that's how I want us to end. Um, the poet Mary Oliver said, attention is the beginning of devotion. Attention is the beginning of devotion. What we give our attention to is what we worship. Jesus said, Martha, you've worried about many, many things, but one thing is needed. Mary has chosen that well. The one thing that is needed for us is to bring our, the eyes of our heart, the gaze of the eyes of our heart back to Jesus. There'll be many troubles and problems in life and no doubt tonight as we gather here, we all have issues and struggles and challenges and problems and fears and anxieties and things which seem like a threat to our existence. Jesus is the one who can overcome. Jesus is the one who can heal. Jesus is the one who can give us hope. He can give us consolation and strength. Let's um, stand together and pray. And I just want to encourage you, if um, I'm going to lead us in a, in a short prayer in a moment, then I'm going to hand over to Stephen and John. And... But if any of this is resonating with you, if you feel as though your attention is pulled this way and that, if you feel as though you are overwhelmed by pressures and hurry and busyness in your life, if you feel as though anxieties and fears are, are, are overwhelming you, if you know that you suffer this hurry sickness, if you know that time tyrannizes you and, and you suffer from digital distraction, then I want to invite you to give your attention now to Jesus. Picture him. Imagine him, however you imagine him. See his eyes gazing at you, looking at you, full of love, full of compassion. Fix your eyes on him. Imagine him before you. He's focused just on you. He loves you. He has grace for you, compassion for you, hope for you. And let all other things fall away. Do not be distracted by even the good things, but seek only the greatest thing, the thing that matters most, the first thing, who is Jesus. Lord Jesus, we come to you now we reach out to you in our hearts. We fix our eyes upon you. Lord, give us hope and consolation. Give us healing for the sickness in our lives. Give us hope to overcome despair. Give us courage to face the darkness and the threats that surround us. Jesus, we come to you, Lord. Jesus. Thanks for listening to the St. John's Hoxton podcast. New talks will be uploaded every week from all of our services. And do check out our website, stjohnshoxton.org.uk, for more information.